you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Right now on Fast, mixed messages for the markets. While mortgage rates, freight rates, and energy prices are all falling, there's fresh hawkish rhetoric from the Fed. New recession chatter and interest rates are rising again. So will this new tug of war keep stocks stuck in neutral? Plus, FTX fallout. Two boutique banks that bet big on crypto getting crushed. One in particular, Silvergate, cut in half just this month. The latest revelations about SBF and the jaw-dropping comments from the new CEO of FTX. And later, charting energy. One of our traders sticking with his call that the best days of the black gold boom are behind us right now. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq Market Site on the desk tonight. Carter Worth, Courtney Garcia, Guy Adami, and Tim Seymour. Live from where else? Sin City. <laughs> we start off with a couple of Fed officials rainy in expectations for a change in policy. James Bullard of the St. Louis Fed saying today, quote, the policy rate is not yet in a zone that may be considered sufficiently restrictive. And that so far, there's just been a limited effect on inflation. Meanwhile, Kansas City's Esther George points to a labor market so tight that inflation can't be brought down without some, quote, real slowing. These comments come even as we've seen some relief on pricing pressures in recent weeks, better than expected CPI and PPI numbers. Mortgage rates with their biggest drop since 1981 and gas prices are getting back to where they were before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Still, interest rates went higher today. The spread between 10 and two-year treasuries, often seen as a recession indicator, hit a new 40-year low. So. What are the markets telling us right now, Guy? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, that's what I'm focused on, that two's tens at 65 basis points. And we've said for a while, I know Carter speaks to this, we thought it could go to 75 basis points in the form of 3.5% in a 10-year, which we're pretty close to, and 4 and a quarter in a two-year. And I'm not an economist. I say it all the time. But that can't be particularly good. And I think this 14% rally since August, October 14th or so is enough. We've talked about it. We thought the overshoot with 4,100, we got the 4,030-ish in the S&P. And these Fed officials continue to speak hawkishly. The market's giving them air cover to do so, and you have to listen to them. So I think the path of least resistance now, given the rally we've seen over the last month, is lower. We swiped at this yesterday as well, the notion that where we are in rates in terms of the 10-year yield, 3.7. I mean, just a month ago, we wouldn't have thought that. And, and yet we don't have any sort of um, trajectory or we don't have any sort of cushion for the growthier parts of the market. We're not seeing any traction um, from that part that you would think would gain on the back of lower rates. And I think that's the hope. But I think what we're hearing from the Fed officials, and this is what people really need to understand, is inflation is coming down, which is a great thing. That's what markets need to see. But it's still not coming down to the 2 to 3% rate. We're still a ways away from that, which is why they're saying they're going to continue to need to raise rates here, theoretically. And it's going to be those growthy areas of the market that they really need to, um, like essentially valuation matters right now if, if rates continue to be high. And valuations are still pretty high in a lot of those categories. And I think that's why they're going to continue to face some pressure here. I mean, I think one of the things we're all subject to is something known as recency, right? We think of rates now, we've just come down from four to three to right. two, seven, six. But if you were to look at the headlines in the last week of September, worldwide, it was rates just exceed 3.76, highest in 12 years. <laughs> so which is it? Have rates down from four, three, or are they at 12-year highs just if we rolled the clock back five months ago? The truth is, I don't think rates are really sort of affecting anything other than the dream that you can pretend to put a multiple on a stock, meaning... 
376-43, that really makes a difference if you're doing three to five year DCF work and figuring out what you're going to pay for Google, Microsoft, Apple? No way. Yeah. Tim, that's a good point. Carter always has good points and puts things into context. Does it matter 4.3 versus 3.7? Well, it does on some level. I think if rates were moving higher on the longer end or holding the other end, you'd have at least a better sense both of the economy and a better sense of of where uh, the sense of the Fed pushing too hard. When the Fed makes the comments, and Bullard's comments today I thought were a little outrageous. I mean, I thought they were aggressive. And, and, you know, the, the... Saying we are not making an impact on any type of inflation when the housing market's under a lot of pressure, when you look at different parts of, of at least, I think, the consumer markets that are under pressure, and we haven't even really seen a lot of the teeth of this, it's very important. And then we got housing data today. Single-family houses uh, starts are down 8%. You've got a, a, an interest rate dynamic, which is basically frozen velocity in the housing. So the Fed is, I think, slowly getting there, but the comments need to continue to to push the sense of, and this is a Fed that understands the market really never believed them in the past or that they never stood and had the resolve that they needed to have in the past. So Bullard's comments, uh, okay, I get it. Uh, I tend to agree with what's been said already, though. Rates had already come down dramatically going into today. Today's move is nothing all that extraordinary either way, in my view, and the inversion in the yield curve is a function of they have to pin rates on the short end. You can Mm -hmm. see where terminal rates and Fed funds are. uh, And I think that's why uh, the market's that focused on this inversion. It almost feels like Bullard was trotted out today to be a little bit more hawky um, based on Waller's comments. Yes, Waller was just saying yesterday that he was more comfortable downshifting to 50 basis points, which is what obviously the markets are are discounting at this point. But today, Bullard mentions the restrictive zone being five to seven percent in that presentation. Five to seven. I don't know if seven is is in anybody's mind right now, Guy. Did you just say trot it out? I mean, that's something that I would say. The fact that the markets rallied and they trot these guys and got mostly guys out well, to sort of talk down the market. Maybe it's strategic. I don't it know. It is strategic. And you know what? As we mm-hmm. said, the market's given them air cover to do exactly that. If this is a 3,200 S&P, my sense is we'd be having a much different conversation and the rhetoric would be much different. But given the fact that the market has found its footing, it gives them the air cover to say exactly what he's been saying. So they are hawkish. They should be hawkish. Inflation is not under control, despite the fact that both CPI and PPI have come in lighter. We're talking, still talking about an inflation rate north of 7.5%. Mm-hmm. If you had said a year ago we'd be here, we'd be that it's catastrophically bad, and we're championing it because somehow we've come off from 9.1. They still have a problem they need to address. Let's get more on the message of the bond market, bringing in on-air editor Rick Santelli. Rick, 5 to 7%. What did you make of that comment? You know, I don't really have a problem with it, uh, 5 to 7%. I think trying to decipher the Fed makes deciphering Rorschach's easy by comparison. They really have no clue, in my opinion, how inflation's going to set up. And the idea that 7% is too high when inflation is in that neighborhood. And I agree, Guy, that 7%, these are high. How's it going to get to 2%? I look at it like a Babe Ruth hit, okay? You hit the ball, it's not anti-gravity, it keeps going up. Inflation, though, is starting to come down. And the isolated, static fashion makes no sense. They were wrong about inflation going high. They're going to be wrong about inflation coming down. In the end, everybody needs to chill because most of what's going wrong is self-inflicted reactions and reactions and actions regarding COVID and how we dealt with it. We're still 
unraveling all that. Its effects in the marketplace, in finance, in derivatives is still distorted. And when you add energy into the entire mix, it really gets crazy. So if you tell me 5 to 7% on overnight rates, I'll tell you 250 basis point inversion, 2s to 10s. Okay, so here's the question, Rick. If the Fed has no idea what is going to happen with inflation, does the bond market? And the corollary question to that is, what is the yield curve inversion then telling us if it does? Well, it tells us something quite simple, that the Fed's really aggressive, and in the end, all traders realize it's going to hurt the economy in a big way, and the long-dated treasuries are going to go up in price, down in yield, and most likely we're going to be having conversations in September and October next year about how many eases are in the system. Rick, thanks. Always great to see you. Get your take on things. Rick Santelli, our honor editor. Carter Worth, where do we see 10-year yields going? I think they're going lower, and ultimately you have to consider the June high as the most important reference point. So mm -hmm. June 15th um, is the low for the S&P. We get a bounce, and that was the high right for yields at 3.5. Subsequently, we've gone and made new highs, but we're coming back to that level. But the corollary call to that is that rate, as rates go lower and stocks go lower. Well, Everything is going see, lower. I think dollar lower, that's happening, and I think yields lower, that's happening, and ultimately, I think stocks go lower as well. All right. Our next guest says that inflation-linked assets uh, should take a permanent place in the investment portfolio. Here with us now to explain is Nancy Davis of Quadratic Capital. Nancy, great to have you here on set. Great to be so you here. You heard our conversation. What do you make of this all? How do you invest in this environment? Well, I think the comments about the yield curve are spot on. The yield curve is lower now than it was even in the 80s, the late 80s. So we've never had this amount of inversion because exactly to your point, Carter, consensus is that long dated yields are going to fall. And there's actually a negative 1% in the derivative markets in the swap market. It's even lower than the treasury market. It's 102 basis points negative between the two and the 10 year swap rate. Wow. So it's just crazy. It's almost like you're paying a tax to buy long-dated bonds. Like here, U.S., I'll lend you some money, but you get paid less to lend money longer, which doesn't make any sense. So the markets are definitely pricing for this low growth, disinflationary, it's priced for a recession, and that's consensus. So the, historically, the way to play inflation, we're still in an inflationary environment, been tips, but if you look at it, they don't really don't work. IVOL does work, so tips to me, extraordinarily rudimentary, one-dimensional. IVOL is not, can you speak to that? Well, I'm the, I'm the portfolio manager for the IVOL ETF, and it takes tips, and it tries to solve the problems, which is exactly right, Guy. They're bonds. They lose money when 10-year yields move higher based on their duration. And then the only index is the consumer price index. It's like only using the Dow Jones in your equity portfolio. Even, even the Fed doesn't use the CPI. So a third of the CPI is rent, and it's a lagging number. So... I think it's a, it's a good solution. And I do think, Melissa, to your point, inflation-protected bonds really should have a place in core fixed-income portfolios, especially because so many of the indices, like the ag index, they don't have any inflation protection in it. So how can it be core fixed-income if it's missing that key component of the market? Yeah, and I, I very much believe in having inflation protection in your portfolio. We always want to have that for our clients. But I do get a lot of pushback right now where people are saying, well, if inflation's coming down, and a lot of people think it is, why do I still need those inflation hedges at this point in time? And I guess that would be my question to you is, how do those still have a place in your portfolio? Not saying I disagree, but I want to hear your, your thoughts on that. Well, just like stocks, you know, all markets move off of future expectations. And the consensus is, is that 
peak inflation has happened, it's going to fall dramatically. So even if you look at the inflation protected bond market, you see the break evens are all around 2%. Even though to Guy's point, we just had our last print at 7.7. .7. So yeah, it's priced to fall, but it's right at the Fed's 2% symmetric target. So why not have some diversification? I think especially for retirees, if you're not in the labor market, you're not going to benefit from wage inflation. So you just have a higher cost of living. So why take a bet against it? And I think that's why it's a core in the portfolio. Hey, Nancy, so it, labor markets versus goods uh, and services or, or goods versus labor markets and services, um, which do you think is the more important driver for the underlying assets uh, or direction of your fund? Well, I think they're all important, but I think the, the thing, there's a lot of complacency that the Fed hiking policy rates is going to ease inflation in the future. And I think the challenge is, is the Fed hiking policy rates doesn't fix the labor market. It doesn't fix the geopolitical risks around the world. It doesn't fix the supply side delays that we're still experiencing because of COVID. So it's just hiking policy rates and that inverted yield curve that's crazy, right? A negative over 1% difference between two and 10-year swap rates just doesn't make a ton of sense. And it's because consensus is buy long-dated bonds because we're going to be in a recession. We're going to be in a low-growth environment. The Fed is going to pivot. And I just think there are very few things that you can buy in today's environment that are trading at valuation levels below the late 80s. You know, what else is there? All right. Nancy, great to see you. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. Nancy Davis of Quadratic. Carter, what's your take? Well, I mean, this is just a consensus moves so quickly. Just if you were to roll back yeah. the clock, my point is the last week in September, we had just crossed over 376 and people were talking about, my God, inflation will never end. And now all of a sudden, everyone's on the other side. Inflation's peaked. Um, the, the, the consensus responds to price. Price leads in every market. And uh, while consensus might be lower now, um, I think it's probably lower than even consensus thinks. Tim, I'm curious, do you think that the investing backdrop is better today versus late September? I mean, Carter was referencing late September because if, if we use that as sort of the benchmark, rates are flat. I'm wondering if, if the outlook is much different. Well, it's, to me, it's all where, where have prices gone on valuations and where have markets gone? And we're, you know, we're, we're I don't know, we're 30% higher on semiconductors. We're at a VIX with 20, at, at a 23 handle, and we've, we've priced, you know, we've had a major rally in the 10-year. That, that's not that bullish to me, um, even though I think we're further along in terms of the Fed messaging. And I, too, uh, I kind of scoffed at the CPI number that was down three-tenths of a percent off of a 40-year high because of used car prices and a calculation in health care costs. I still think, you know, I look at services inflation that outstrip goods inflation in that in that CPI number, in that PPI number. Those are the things to worry about. Jobless claims uh, today that came out went down. The labor market remains very tight. So um, back to where would I be today versus back in September? I'm more cautious, mostly just because assets have priced in a lot of good news. All right. Coming up, we've got some after hours action in Palo Alto Networks and Williams-Sonoma shares moving in very different directions. After their results, the details from the reports next, plus BABA bumps higher. Last month, one of our traders eyed this stock for a potential trade. What he or she is doing with the name now? Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. 
For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert for you on Williams-Sonoma, the retailer beating Wall Street estimates, but shares getting burned as margins came in lower than expected. Steve Kovac joins us with the details. Steve. Yeah, Mel. So it's that falling gross margin that's sending those shares lower, despite light, slight beats on the top and bottom line. And fresh off their earnings call, CEO was warning about the macroeconomic backdrop that has gotten even more uncertain. Let's get to the results, though. EPS beating by a penny at $3.72 and revenue coming in at $2.19 billion, also a slight beat. But it's that gross margin disappointing investors falling about 2% from the year ago quarter and missing the street's estimates. Now, the CEO was blaming shipping costs for missing those margins and, and uh, saying shipping is getting worse. But we have gotten some data recently, Mel, saying shipping costs overall are going down. Uh, look, other, unlike some other retailers, we've heard from the company reaffirming its guidance for the full year and still lots of uncertainty heading into the holiday season among all retailers. We got this narrative of goods versus services and luxury versus discount. It's all still playing out, but we see how uh, Williams is, Sonoma is trading on it, Mel. All right. Uh, Steve, thanks. Steve Kovac, thanks. Uh, Tim Seymour. How do you like WSM? Well, I, I like it. Um, I guess I, I don't like it as much as I like restoration hardware. And some of this is around promotional activity. And some of this is around, um, I just think, the multiple. I, I think uh, the, the, the fact is that the stock is not expensive, even relative to a market multiple. Um, I think the lack of guidance, the, the fact that they said that they weren't going to give guidance into 24 has probably got Karen Feinerman somewhere with a big smile on her face because I don't blame them for this uncertain out, you know, outlook. I, I think we've talked all about the housing market. The question really, and we're debating this and we debated this with Lowe's versus Home Depot. To what extent do people staying in their home means they're going to spend more on fixing up the one they have? Um, or have we just pulled forward you know, the, the once in a lifetime trade for Williams-Sonoma? I don't think you need to do anything here. Yeah, actually, I, I do want to agree with this, where I, I think your retailers, they are going to still face some headwinds here. And I do think, theoretically, you are still seeing your higher income consumers are holding up better. And I think your Williams-Sonoma should benefit from that. Um, but I do still think moving forward, it's your retailers and specifically your home buyers are not going to have as much momentum moving forward. So it's not something I'm going to jump into currently. There are only so many cast iron skillets that one needs, <laughs> especially when 
when wealthier households are trading down, which is the trend that Walmart is seeing, are they going to Williams-Sonoma to buy that? And, and all the other good things, the lemon squeezers. And right, the, and all the, the $20 shakers. pot yeah, holders, right. you and name it. Pizza, pie, uh, marble things. In any event, here's the thing, <laughs> and there's no way around this. There are two types of weakness. Weakness is to take advantage of and weakness is to stay away from. And you have to determine in every instance which this one is and in any instance. So is it down? It was, it's 130 close. It's indicated at 118. Down from 140 just two days ago. But guess what? Last Wednesday it was at 115. So you're at 115. It went up 22% ahead of earnings. And now you're back to where you were last Wednesday. I think you take advantage of the pre-market dip or the post-market weakness here and buy. Ooh. All right, let's uh, buy. I wasn't expecting that after you rattled off those very expensive items that you probably have in your own home, Carter. Uh, we got another earnings alert for you on Palo Alto Networks. It just felt like you knew the list of things you can get there pizza, very, very pizza. well. Um, Palo Alto shares popping in the after-hour session as a cybersecurity company beat on both revenues and earnings. Let's get to Frank Holland for the details. Frank. Hey, Melissa. Uh, solid core all around for Palo Alto. Next generation security AR. That's current customer spend with its growth portfolio beating estimates. RPO grew 38%, showing a strong flow of upcoming revenue. Free cash flow topping $1 billion, well above estimates. Forward guidance was pretty solid as well, with the bottom range of EPS, excuse me, the top range of EPS above estimates. CEO Nikesh Arora explained on the call just a short time ago inflation is impacting cybersecurity. As we all know, the Fed is working to tame inflation impacting growth. While cybersecurity is somewhat resilient, we do see some marginal signs of impact. Cybersecurity deals are getting more scrutiny, suggesting deeper and longer reviews of transformational projects. All right, the strong report also giving a major boost to other cybersecurity stocks, including Zscaler and Sentinel One. Both are up more than 2%. And coming up on Mad Money, Jim Cramer will sit down with CEO Nikesh Arora to discuss this quarter and the state of cybersecurity. Melissa, back over to you. Frank, thanks. Frank Holland, Guy. It's a great quarter stock that's now trading at probably five times, six times revenue or something, 40 times next year's numbers. But this is best in breed, and it's in a silo, in a vertical that everybody wants to be in. So if you can wrap your head around valuation, again, that I pointed out, I love this stock, but it's problematic. This was not that it matters, but it was a $211 stock or so, seemingly just a few months ago, pulled back. I love the name, and if your time horizons is longer than typically Fast Money allows it to be, this is the name in the space that you absolutely want to own. Do you want to be in this high valuation stock, Tim, uh, in this environment? Is this I've, silo I've spent, okay? This, the silo is more okay than others, and, and I think we've seen that some of these high multiple names even held up in the first kind of whack at, at, at the high multiple names. Palo Alto is a name, and, and I think, again, the M&A activity and, and some of the balance sheet dynamics, well, the balance sheet's not, not in question at all. The question is, what were they willing to pay? And I think that was something that I think the stock's still working through. This is a company that, as, as guys pointed out for a long time, by the way, um, really is best to breed in its space. Cyber, the tailwinds there and the secular dynamics around cyber are, are here for a long time. We're not seeing any let up in spend, despite what's going on in the economy. Carter, your take on this pop? You know, it, it's, not, it's not impacting the pattern that much. And I would just point out, this is a darling. 36 buys, no sells, and yet uh, it's sort of a pair of twos for me. Not particularly bearish or bullish. And that's bad, Do you right? Play, no, 2-7 offsuit is really bad. But pair of twos Well, is I mean, good. it's not great unless on the flop you flop that's a couple right. twos and then Vegas you're... Here. Tim's in right. Vegas, that's right. I mean, I asked, right. asked Tim. Yeah. I don't know gambling stuff. All right, a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. <laughs> Bingo on Baba. 
shares jumping on the back of earnings, and Guy predicted just that. He'll lay out what to do now. Plus, the FTX collapse sending waves throughout Wall Street. And it's not just crypto firms in hot water. The names that could be at risk ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Alibaba jumping after the Chinese e-commerce giant posted better-than-expected earnings on an adjusted basis for the quarter. The stock is now at more than 30% this month, and one of our traders is calling for a bounce just like this only a few weeks ago. You go back and look what happened to Alibaba around the 4th of July. Stock rallied almost 50%. We actually talked about it leading up to it. I think you have another situation where it's setting up for a trade. Traded five times normal volume today, made a low we haven't seen in six years, to your earlier point. I think you can trade Baba from the long side into earnings next week, Mel. So now we're past earnings. What do you do, Guy? Prescient, which is good the word call. I like to say, good, but good don't know how to say I don't even call. know what it means. It's a trading call, yeah. right? And that's what we try to do. We mentioned that this looked eerily familiar or similar to what we saw back on the 4th of July. The volume suggesting that the downside exhausted itself, and you could see a rally of this magnitude. Since 2020, October, this stock has gone from 310 down to 58, but you've seen seven, eight, nine different 30, 40, 50 percent rallies off the bottom, and that's what we set up for. How do you trade it now? Well, it traded three times normal volume today. If you were fortunate enough to trade it around that $64 level, which was October 24th or thereabouts, you have to take some money off the table. You have to be disciplined. I think Carter would say that as well. Personally, I still think there's some upside here, mm -hmm. but you got to be paring down risk in Alibaba. The question is, should you leave money on the table, Tim? Did we, did we learn from earnings that maybe they've got a grip on costs, that they are implementing this uh, bigger share buyback program, which will help the stock, all of these things? Maybe COVID policies will be less restrictive. Uh, yes, yes, and yes. They're going to pay out 44% of adjusted net income in 2024 fiscal, which is you know going on only you know a half year. And in, and if you look at the PE uh, based upon 24 estimates, you're, you're talking about a 10 times PE with expected. If you listen to J.P. Morgan or actually a handful of other people, EPS growth of. 40%. The, the whole story to me is, is, is the worst over in terms of the pressure on the company from the government because China will open. China's economy and e-commerce volumes, by the way, for the December quarter are not going to be good. We know all this. It's all in the price. Um, but at some point, it, it's very much uh, where e-commerce gets better. I, I think actually this is now time to be an investor in BABA. And I recognize all, it got absolutely right in terms of the trading ranges. And you've been trading it from the short side and you've been trading it on these 30% ranges. It's now moved 45 percent off of those lows. And I think you stay here. Courtney, where are you on this? Yeah, I think some of the bigger um, 
theoretical tailwinds right now are you are seeing hopefully China is going to reopen. I think it's a really a question of when. It's not a question of if. And the other thing is the dollar is starting to come down, which I do think is going to benefit this. So I think when you take some of those things into perspective, I do think it still is going to have some room to run here. And I, th I think you want to look at this optimistically. What do the charts say, Carter? Mm. That's right. What do the charts say? So it's the hardest thing of all, how to cope with a winner. In principle, one would think how to cope with a loser is the hardest. It's not. You cut your losses. So you've got a great winner here, what to do. This is where selling calls makes a lot of sense. The December 90s are going for four bucks. Stock's trading at 85 right now, which means you participate all the way to 94 over the next month. That's the thing to do. Coming up, the FTX fallout continues, how the collapse is spilling into other areas of the market. The names at risk next. Plus, former FDIC chair Sheila Baer will join us to dig into the crypto crash, the critical regulation she is calling for right now. Fast Money, be back in two. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another check on markets today. Stocks finishing well off their lows, but still in the red for a second straight day. The Dow dropping seven points. The S&P and Nasdaq both down three-tenths of a percent. All three indices on pace to close out the week in the red. Shares of Live Nation dropping nearly three percent after a Taylor Swift fiasco. Mm. Ticketmaster canceling public sales of tickets to... It says Tay-Tay's. Is that what she goes by? What? Tay -tay. It says in the prompter, Tay-Tay's latest tour. Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> Taylor's latest tour, I assume. After fans ran into a number of technical issues due to extreme demand, so much bad blood on this one. And shares of Gap jumping after hours on the back of results. The, company's post, the company posting a beat on earnings and comp sales. Now to the latest uh, on the implosion of FTX. The new CEO, John Ray, who helped with the 2001 Enron bankruptcy, saying he's never seen such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information. This coming in a Delaware bankruptcy court filing. Finance CEO Chang Peng Zhao on Squawk Box today saying it is clear there was a misappropriation of user funds. He backed out of a deal to rescue FTX last week. I'm very shocked that I, I obviously did not know him until about a week or so ago. Um, so I'm, I'm just shocked. Um, I'm, I'm shocked that, you know, he lied to everybody. Meanwhile, Silvergate Capital, a firm that's become known as a crypto bank, out with a mid-quarter update following the FTX collapse. It is reporting Bitcoin collateralized loans have not seen losses. This is what the Silvergate CEO had to say about his business back in June on CNBC. We've absolutely seen no credit issues at Silvergate, um, and that is because we only lend against Bitcoin. Investors punishing Silvergate for its involvement in crypto. The stock is down almost 12 percent today, but it's already been cut in half this month. Um, and Tim, we continue to see the fallout in names like Robinhood, in a Coinbase. Coinbase's bonds are trading 57 cents or so on the dollar for bonds that are up in 2023. So uh, there's real pain here. Yeah, micro strategies. I mean, you pick the, mm -hmm. the folks that hits the wagon here. And, and it's interesting to me, though, I, I tell you, I look at how Bitcoin's traded over the last few days. and I'm actually impressed. Uh, I mean, if you think about where there is, are even just liquidity dynamics and margin calls and, and obviously just the, the complete seizure of, of uh, at least counterparties to counterparties. And it's pretty, it's pretty fascinating. I, I think 
like it's 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 of course greatly ironic that a lot of the, the the crypto bros are now in here wanting more regulation. But that's that's really I think what a lot of people and I believe we've been saying that on this show as as well. Institutional involvement uh, begs for. Uh, more regulatory oversight. And, and, and of course, the people that are in the middle of this also have said that while we wish that the code itself uh, and the decentralized nature of the underlying assets and the, the whole theoretical concepts here really should have survived without regulatory approval and, and oversight, we need it very badly. And, and, but again, I think Bitcoin's traded pretty well over the last couple of days. Yeah. Let's turn to a former regulator who is now involved in blockchain. Sheila Baer was FDIC chair during the 2008 financial crisis. She now advises Spring Labs and is on the board of Paxos, which has a stable coin. Sheila, great to have you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Could, could regulation have prevented this from happening, seeing that you know, FTX was basically an offshore right. entity? Right. Right. First of all, let me say I'm expressing personal views here. I'm not uh, mm-hmm. representing any companies I may be affiliated with. Yeah, I think regulation could have prevented a lot of this, especially the misuse of customer funds. Um, it, it, this is why we have regulation. You know, people complain about regulation, but at the end of the day, you need it to protect consumers. You need it to protect uh, financial stability. You need it to protect creditors, investors. Uh, it was completely, you know, except for a small derivatives uh, exchange piece of this, it was completely you know, uh, flying uh, freely without any kind of meaningful regulatory uh, oversight. But all, there are also other problems. You know, you didn't have an independent board. You didn't have risk controls. I mean, there are a lot of things that are kind of standard for, for responsibly run companies, whether you're regulated or not, that they just didn't have. Uh, but it's amazing to me that this guy could have had the kind of credibility and cachet he had in Washington and nobody looking behind the curtain and realizing that this is actually what was going on. And so many Congress people were willing to sort of hitch their wagons as well to Sam Bankman-Fried, yeah. accepting his, his donations in, in size. Sheila, when you take a look at the regulatory landscape, though, who do you point your finger at at this point? And, yeah. and I'm not looking to point fingers at, but, but who is yeah. responsible for this? Is it CFTC? Is it SEC? Well, who should have been on top of this? Yeah, well, I, I, don't think, I don't think you can fault regulators because, well, look, we've all been saying you need to regulate this market for a long time. They've been wanting Congress to act because there's not a lot of clarity, complete clarity about what's a security, what's a commodity, what should be with the banking regulators. But Congress is not going to act for the foreseeable future, especially with the, with the you know, with split in the, with the Republicans and Demo- Republicans in control in the House now and, and Democrats still in control in the Senate. They need to just collectively get together. Here are our authorities. This is what we're going to use. The SEC and CFTC should agree. This is what's going to be regulated as security. This is going to be subject to the CFTC's jurisdiction. Stable coins, I think there are ways to get the stablecoin business into regulated banks or trusts. The OCC has tried to make a few moves in that direction, but they just need to use the authorities they have. Dodd-Frank also gives them authority under Title VIII to, for payment systems to be designated as systemic. You might make a case for stablecoin that that could be brought in under, under oversight under that authority of Dodd-Frank. They need to get a little creative. It's not easy, but they just need to move forward because people are getting hurt. A lot of people are getting hurt. Sheila, without question, fraud will exist regardless of the environment. Well, there will always be that's people true. that will look to rip people off. Yes, yes, that's right. That's so okay. just I want to put that out there. So here's yeah. my question. Federal Reserve that's been, my word, not yours, reckless, overly accommodative for 14 years, flooding the system with liquidity. Liquidity needs to find a place. Liquidity makes people really lazy and complacent. Does the Fed yeah. have any role in this whatsoever? 
I think I don't want to personalize it, but the accommodative, the accommodative monetary policy, the near zero interest rates we've effectively had for 14 years, absolutely have has contributed to all of these bubbles. And capital has just so been so cheap, and it's just been drawn to speculative uses because it's so cheap. People use a lot of leverage. It's absolutely had a role to play uh, with uh, with crypto speculation. And so I, I celebrate the fact it's going to be painful to get out of this. I celebrate the fact we're going back to a more normalized interest rate environment where capital actually costs something. So investors have to be disciplined about where they're putting their investment dollars and just not, you know, some shiny new toy that some whiz kid says, oh, you know, I've got a great idea. Give me some money. And they do apparently with no due diligence whatsoever. That era needs to come to an end. They're still making decisions. You can't, you can't fault the Fed for people doing stupid things. But accommodative monetary policy has made it much easier to do stupid things with money because it's just so cheap. Sheila, some of the pain that has been um, put onto the crypto industry has been done by lenders within the crypto industry, lending out Bitcoin, paying people, you know, 8 percent in yield. And and these are not necessarily these aren't banks. Um, As former chair of the FDIC, do you see that that these sorts of lenders might in another framework in the future have to be regulated like like a bank? Well, I, I think there, there needs there clearly needs to be some oversight. I mean, it's not clear what a lot of you know these these uh, these these uh, DeFi lending schemes that are promising these outsized returns. What's really behind that? And you know, there there are a lot of red flags. Uh, I wrote a book for called for kids called Shark Scam. It was about Ponzi schemes. I think a lot of adults may need to read that book too because you know you're 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 getting promised these outsized returns. It's not quite clear where it's coming from. Good chance it's just coming from other investors who came in after you. So we don't know what the facts are, but that's certainly an area that I would investigate. But that, to the the earlier point, that's just fraud. That's illegal. There are a lot of authorities to crack down uh, over that kind of behavior. Consumer lending in general, yes, it needs to be regulated. We have a lot of non-bank lenders who do consumer lending now, but there is the CFPB uh, has oversight. They should have, to the extent this is going to... uh, to, I think there's a good argument that CFPB should have some authority over, over you know, crypto lending as well. That's not the case. But again, individuals are players in this market, too. Unfortunately, a lot of young people speculating with money they really don't, you know, can't afford to lose. So, yes, the short answer is yes, we need some oversight of it. But to the extent it's, it's just illegal Ponzi schemes, there's lots of authority right now to go after them. Yeah. Sheila, always great to get your take. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Nice being here. Sheila Bear. There are always bad people out there, Carter, looking to rip other people off. That's for sure. That is for sure. In every industry, in every undertaking, it's the nature of sort of human interaction. But I think, interestingly, uh, Tim, you make a great point. If you think about the June low in Bitcoin, mm-hmm. um, 17600 we are literally only 5% below that low. So while we broke hard, we're basically not deteriorating further. And ultimately, I think that's going to matter. Yeah. Courtney, do a lot of your clients, are they still interested in, in crypto? Or has this burned them? Yeah, so we uh, we have never recommended it. It's not part of our portfolio. But I can say probably like over the summer, we were getting a lot of interest. People saying, you know, I know you don't recommend it, but I still want to put some in there. And I feel like that's always right around when you get like these things are topping from a consumer sentiment standpoint, which is kind of what was happening. And, um, it, you know, it's just far too speculative for our clients' risk tolerance. So it's nothing we touch. But I do think it's going to, I mean, this is going to be something that's unfortunately going to have to have the regulation, which... The whole point of Bitcoin is to not be regulated. So I don't know where that brings Bitcoin from here. Well, that was always sort of the, the rub with Sam Bankman-Free trying to go to, you know, go to the rescue of all these firms. Mm. It's like a, a decentralized financial system. And yet 
so much power was actually centralized, and then you see the fallout now. Yeah. Well, there, there were, by the way, Terry Duffy was on Capitol Hill a year ago and called BS on this entire thing. He got castigated in front of Congress. But let me just say, I'll just throw this out here, because <laughs> right. why not? F, this is an exchange FTX, right? right? Mm. They're effectively an exchange. Why is that then an indictment on what's traded? The same way if the mercantile exchange blew right. up, it doesn't mean the crude oil contract right. should go lower. So, I, I mean, again, I'm not a Bitcoin bull. I'm just surprised that Bitcoin was collateral damage in all this, if you think about it that way. All right. Coming up, why one of our traders says energy is the most important area of the market to watch right now and where he thinks it is heading. Plus, the move in crude has got options traders piling into one energy name, how they're playing the stock straight ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Crude falling to its lowest level in over a month and on pace for its worst week since August as rising COVID cases in China and higher interest rates in the U.S. stifle demand. The chartmaster says it's time to take some money off the table in the energy trade. Carter, you're over at the smart board. Walk us through. Sure. Let's look at the charts and figure it out together. So the question is, of course, the commodity versus the uh, underlying stocks. But here is the picture of crude oil. And it is fairly clear, at least to my eye, what we have, we have a well-defined trend, and we have an instrument that is breaking trend on the cusp. Look at the next iteration. It's the same chart, but just putting in the converging trend line. So a big juncture, and we're on the cusp of really undercutting an important trend line in effect since 2020. Now, as to the energy shares market, and this is one more chart of crude. You can use your moving average to measure trend instead of that. And this is what a bullish to bearish reversal looks like. But the shares market, this is the issue. Um, do you stay overweight? Now, this is an, uh, a very long-term chart. Now, you're not looking at um, an actual instrument. You're looking at a ratio, energy's relative performance to the S&P. Now, if you put in some lines, look at the next. What we've got here, and this is remarkable, right, that energy, of course, underperforming, 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 and we got to the penny, to this downtrend line, and we hit our head. And so the final iteration is as follows. You can see where the trend has been since the 06 peak, and energy over the last four or five sessions underperforming the S&P by five, 600 base points. We think there's more to go. You want to be no longer overweight energy. All right. Well, options traders seem to agree with Carter that it is time to fade this trade. Mike Coe's got the action. Mike. Yeah, so taking a look at the energy stocks, we saw that overall the options market sentiment was bearish. And the way they were reflecting that was actually by selling some upside. Uh, one of the examples, obviously the largest integrated oil name, ExxonMobil, we saw a sale of nearly 18,000 of the February 125 calls at 275 a contract each. That trader collecting nearly $5 million in premium on a bet that the rally is coming to an end. And I would point out that we saw similar bets of similar size in some of the oil service names like Schlumberger and Halliburton as well. Courtney, what's your take on Exxon? Um, actually, I still think that energy is something that you want to have. Um, I do agree it's probably something you wanted to buy earlier in the year, but I, it's absolutely not something I'm selling. We want it as part of our portfolio, and it does continue to be an inflation hedge for you, especially when you look at something like an Exxon. Even if oil prices do come down, their break-evens are so much lower because they've come in so much more efficient, so they can still be profitable even if energy comes down significantly, and I think that's what you want to look at. All right. Thank you, Mike Coe. For more Options Action, tune into the full show. That is tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up. Pot stocks taking a hit today. Is it time to weed out these names in your portfolio? 
Our cannabis king is here with a blunt truth on that trade. Ha! Next on Fast Money. Welcome back to Fast Money. Pot stocks taking a hit today as the biggest cannabis industry trade show, MJ BizCon, wraps the second day in Las Vegas. The industry getting rocked by higher costs of capital, but with two more states voting in favor of legalization in the midterms. One of our traders is as bullish as ever on the sector, and that would be, of course, Tim Seymour, who has been there at that conference for the past couple of days. Tim. I have been. Well, it, you know, it's, it's been, there's been the great exhale, if I may. And if you think about where expectations were, where euphoria was going all the way back to the Georgia runoff of 21. But, but we, we know that story. So, so what has there been and what was the sentiment coming out of this conference today? I led the investor panel with other major investors in the space. We pointed to, to four or five things, including two major macro dynamics. We had the Biden decriminalization comments. We certainly had the Dems holding on to it, peers, uh, the Senate, which is all very good for legislation although that's not the reason to, to necessarily have expectations in the short term. But you had some, some major strategics, Circle K and GTI. You had, you had P. Diddy maybe stepping to the table, but more importantly, some divestitures getting done in the space. You know, how about the TSX uh, raising their hand and saying, actually, we, we would be listing U.S. players, even though they are touching the plant in the U.S. So there, there are incremental pieces of the puzzle that have been very bullish and a total reset. And, and again, a total reset of valuations. The end industry needs capital. So uh, to tell you that I'm, uh, you know, bullish, I'm going to tell you that the top line is better than we could have expected here. We've had more progress in D.C. than you could have expected. And companies that are at least the leaders in the industry have gotten through some of the most difficult conditions and are operating today and, and very successful. I met with a software company today. So there's there's subsectors, there's technology, there's ancillary, there's there's retail. Um, there are companies surviving and doing well here. The investors need more capital to come in and they need more, you know, fundamental trading of the underlying industry. And some of that, uh, I'm afraid, does need to wait for Washington. But again, it, it's, it's where we've come from. If you look at cannabis stocks on the charts, you can make stronger mar- arguments on technicals too, including a six-month basing period, having filled uh, uh, both those Biden kind of gap hires and actually started to move above the 50 and the 100 days. So a lot of excitement out here, as there always is, but really interesting couple of days. All right. Up next, final trades. Time for the final trade, Tim Seymour. Yeah, I, I like that energy stocks have actually held serve with oil selling down. I think the OIH has a date with 350, oil services. CBW. A little bit of a dip in gold. Uh, get some if you don't have any. Courtney. Dear, uh, they're coming out with earnings. I think industrials are something you want to take a look at here. Go. Watch me connect dots here. Okay. Can I do that? Where is Tim? Where is Tim? Las Vegas. What is he there for? Pot. What's going to happen around midnight in Las Vegas? They're all going to be getting the munchies, right? I know Tim is. He's going to be puffing the magic dragon. Why McDonald's. Tim, gonna, Tim doesn't puff the magic Whatever oh, that I'm means. I'm just saying. Anyway, McDonald's. 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 All right. Thank you for watching Fast Money. See you back here tomorrow at 5. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.